40-year-old Phil and his wife Claire sat at opposite ends of the sofa in my living room. Uh, I was counseling them. Uh, They were having difficulty in their marriage. That night, she was backwards and forwards between floods of tears and a flying rage. Phil just sat there stunned, not quite sure why his wife reacted the way she did to this, his admission of sexual sin. He had just told her that he looked at pornography every day without fail, had been doing so for years. Now, the difference in their reactions and their responses was, was quite incredible just to watch. She was shocked and astounded. He was indifferent and didn't quite get what all the fuss was about. She said that Phil's admission explained why he was so cold towards her and cold towards God. But he said, well, it it doesn't affect our relationship one little bit. It's just the satisfying of an appetite. When you're hungry, you have something to eat. When you're turned on, you just do what every young guy does. It's not good, he said, to suppress a desire like this. I've been doing this for years, he said. And it doesn't impact on my life, on my Christian life, or my Christian witness. And anyway, God will forgive me. Maybe you should too. I think I sat astounded for a whole other bunch of reasons to see this dialogue and hear this response. What do you think about that kind of attitude? We, we, we almost expect to find those kind of attitudes in our city, uh, in our culture. But I, I would dare say that many of you, I would hope all of you, would be as shocked as I was at hearing those things. We should be shocked when we hear those kind of things being said in the church, those attitudes prevailing among the people of God. Yet Phil, I think, is typical of many Christians who think that they can maintain a relationship with Christ and maintain a witness for Christ while practicing sexual immorality of many different kinds. So people would say masturbation is acceptable because it's a natural release or sex with your fiancé is fine because you're going to get married soon and God will forgive you anyway. Or visiting a massage parlor round the corner is fine because it's just sex. There's no love involved. It's not like you're trying to have a relationship. It's just some kind of physical transaction. Is that true? Is that the way we're supposed to look upon sex? Well, let's see how the Bible answers those questions. Why don't you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 to 20. If you're using one of the Bibles in front of you in the pew, that's on page 1148. So Paul is writing to a church that is struggling with these very issues in a sex-soaked culture. 
and let's see what God's Word has to say to us from chapter 6, verse 12. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By this power, his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Amen. This is God's word. So the big idea for this passage is really that the body is not meant for sexual immorality. It's meant for the Lord. Uh, He honors it. And so should you. That's the main gist of what we're looking at this evening. It's obvious then, as we look at this text, that there is a problem of sexual immorality in Corinth. It all started off in chapter 5, verse 1, actually. There are various kinds of immoral behavior going on. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. He addresses a kind that doesn't even exist among the pagans, the unbelievers. But now he, he deals with the visitation of people in the church in Corinth to see prostitutes. Now, the word that's used here for sexual immorality... It's a a pretty clear word in Greek. It it is the word porneia, from which we get our word pornography. And it's it's not the word that is commonly used in the New Testament to refer to adultery, but it's it's a word that covers a far broader category. It's like an umbrella word that covers the wider category, of course, of uh, adultery, but also uh, any kind of sexual sin that Uh, or sexual behavior that takes place outside of marriage. And in Corinth, in verse 16 in particular, we see that some are visiting prostitutes. Now, the question that we should be immediately thinking is, how come a Christian church can have such things going on within its midst? How can people who profess to believe in Jesus, uh, to follow him, to be those who have received this grace that he has poured out on them, for the forgiveness of sins, act like this. Well, there are two little things going on in here, I think. Well, two big things, really. One, there is a misunderstanding of Christian liberty. That can lead to immoral behavior of this kind. Verse 12 contains something of a slogan. Everything is permissible for me, they say. These were people who thought of themselves as being spiritually mature. 
of those who knew God. In fact, they thought they were pretty full of the Holy Spirit and of knowledge. But yet they are taking what this Christian message is, a message of a free gift of grace, a recognition that there is nothing that we can do to save ourselves. There is nothing that we can do to make ourselves right with a holy God. He comes. When we put our faith and trust in Him, He wipes our slate clean. We are given a fresh start. We are given what Paul calls in Galatians, freedom in Christ. But, even as we saw in that letter, freedom, that freedom is often abused where people do what they want to do, knowing that God will forgive them anyway. Remember what Phil said? That's a dangerous tact. Especially in light of what we just read at the end of the last section, in chapter 6 and verses 9 to 11, where we said, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. In other words, we can be self-deceived into thinking that we're in the kingdom of God when in fact our persistent sin in some of these areas without repentance and without remorse might actually show that we are not inheritors of the kingdom after all. It might show that we are enslaved by sin, which is what uh, Paul is hinting at here in verse 12. I will not be mastered by anything. In other words, they are if they cannot control these appetites. So Christian freedom is not the freedom to do what you want, but the freedom to do what is right. But they have misunderstood what Christian liberty is about. And he addresses that. That's one of the reasons why Christians can act in this way and seemingly do so with freedom. The second reason why Christians can act this way is that a person may have a culturally defined view of sex. I think that's what's hinted at when we read here, food for the stomach and stomach for food. It reflects the local, uh, the city-wide, the cultural belief that sex is just an appetite. We know what that is here. There's nothing moral or immoral about it, according to the Corinthians, like digestion, sexual intercourse. It's just a bodily function. But look at what Paul goes on to say. And this little addition that, that God will destroy them both, I think, rises out of a Greek understanding of the material wor world and the physical world, where the Greeks viewed the, the body as something that was material and temporary and actually not that important. So they were quite happy to say, well, if you need to have sex, have sex. It really doesn't matter. It's not what you do with your body that matters it's what you do with your soul. So they had this kind of separate view of body and soul, of matter and of spirit. But Paul says, you, you are getting this all wrong. Yet that misunderstanding of Christian liberty and that absorption and application of culturally defined views of sex are the very things that affect Christians today in how we live our lives, and whether or not we maintain any kind of integrity in our relationships, whether married or not. What is it that will help the Corinthians then to think rightly about the body? 
the physical thing that they think is just passing. What, what is it that's going to help them to think rightly then about sex, the gift that God has given for within the context of marriage, to be a, a giving of a whole self, not just a physical transaction? Well, Paul does this head-turning thing again. Remember I mentioned that last week, where he turns their head to the future to tell them something, and he turns their head to the past to show them something in order to help them see let that future reality and that past reality help you figure out how to live your life right now. And this is a, I think we have a great picture here of what Paul does pointing to uh, God, the Holy Trinity, to give, us, to give us a hook, to give us something to hold on to that will, that will help us in this struggle with sexual immorality. Look to the future, he says, first of all. Your body will be raised by God the Father. That's what he says in verse 14. By his power, God raised the Lord, that's Jesus, from the dead. So you see what Paul is saying here. He's saying the resurrection of Jesus is not just some kind of spiritual thing. It's a physical thing as well. There are no remains in that tomb. The body of Jesus was raised. Sure, it was changed, glorified, perfected, ready for eternity, but it's the same body that's been prepared for eternity. Why does Paul tell us this? Because the same is true also for the Christian. Look again at verse 14, and he will raise us also. So he's trying to show you, and he's trying to show us that your body is not destined for destruction. It's destined for eternity. Therefore, what you do with your body matters. Let that future reality then affect what you do with your body right now. Not only are we to look to the future to see our body will be raised, we have to look to the past and see that our body has been united to God the Son. Verse 15 to 17 highlights this. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? The very fact that Paul is saying here, do you not know, tells us that he's already taught them. In other words, you should remember this. So what has he taught? Well, at that moment when a person first repents of sin and puts their faith in Jesus Christ, they become vitally united to him to the point that they become part of his body. That is the church. And in light of the fact that they are then, and we who have put our faith and trust in Christ are the body of Christ, we then live for him as his body, living to do his will, to do his work, to love as he loves and to demonstrate his character and truth, his gospel to the world. What a noble purpose that is. What a great trust has been given to the church that is the body of Christ. What a noble purpose. Should it not then be unthinkable for us to put these bodies to an immoral purpose? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Shall I take the members of Christ and conduct some sexually immoral act? Never, Paul says. Even the thought of it is shocking to Paul. 
And he actually goes on to paint quite a shocking picture here, where, where effectively he's saying, if you can't picture Christ with a prostitute, or sleeping around, then you shouldn't picture yourself in those kind of circumstances or put yourself in those kind of circumstances either. It's offensive. You belong to Christ. More than that, you are joined to Christ. His body is pure, truly holy, then yours should be too. Yours should be too. You see what Paul is saying to them here? You, you cannot be truly united to Christ and leave your sex life outside of the realms of his authority. It's ridiculous. You are one with him, as verse 17 says. What's more, you cannot warp his gift of sex within the bounds of marriage into something that it is not. This is what the reference is here to the two will become one flesh. He's making a reference to Genesis. God's design for marriage. God's design for sex within the boundaries of a heterosexual marriage. God has designed sex as a really a life-changing union and the ultimate expression of whole self-giving. The two will become one flesh. So Paul is saying here that you must never have any kind of physical oneness without whole life oneness. That's marriage. You must never become so physically one with a person and think that you can hold on to your independence So that it's just a transaction. It doesn't work. That's not the way God designed it. No, when you unite yourself to someone in a sexual in sexual intimacy, you you're supposed to become legally, economically, socially, emotionally, every kind of ally with that one person. In marriage. Full stop. But what people want to do, and what we might be tempted to do at times, is use the gift for our own self-pleasure without the God-ordained pattern of intimacy between a man, a husband, and a wife. Thinking about your union with Christ then, in the past, when you first believed, should have a massive impact on how you practice, how you live out your life in the present. And then he says, look to the present. Verse 19, your body is inhabited by the Holy Spirit. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? He says his presence is ever with us because he lives in us. Here's a question for us. How would our behavior change if our wife or our husband or someone whose friendship meant the world to us was with us every single minute of every single day? 
when their eyes were constantly upon you, when they were constantly with you, constantly trying to have conversation with you? Would you visit the places you visit? Would you watch the things you watch when you're on your own? Paul is trying to help us see that the very presence of the Holy Spirit should help us see that He, the Spirit who is at work in our bodies, should provide us with a great motivation for living for Christ. To live a life that honors God in every way. So you have a great picture of past, present, future, how the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is working in us so that we might live holy lives that are pleasing to Him, so that we we might have things that would ward off these temptations to sin sexually. And to finish it off, Paul tells us quite plainly, God has redeemed your body. Who made your body? Your God, Jesus Christ, who came to live without sin in a body, be tempted in a body, die and rise in a body in order to redeem and rescue your body from the dominion of darkness and prepare that body for eternal joy in his presence forevermore. Who's coming again to judge the deeds and misdeeds that you have done in your body? Jesus Christ. Who will, spe- who will we spend eternity with in a glorified body ourselves? Jesus Christ. So who owns our body? It's not you. It's not you. You are not your own, he says in verse 19. You were bought at a price. Jesus Christ has died in the ultimate act of self, whole self-giving and whole self-donation in order to redeem and rescue and save a people who struggle with all kinds of sins, including sexual sins. To the point that we can say with those who were struggling with these kind of sins. Back in chapter 6 verse 9 to 11. The sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, or male prostitutes, or homosexual offenders, or thieves, greedy, drunkards, slanderers, swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you, what's the word again? Where? You should smile when you read that word. Where? Where? Because it refers to you as well. That's what you were, but what happened? You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In other words, you were converted. You were changed. He bought you. He's using an image from a slave market. He bought you. You're not your own. Do not live your life using this body of yours like it is your own, like you are you have some kind of independent autonomy. Like God is not in, God is in control of everything else in the entire sphere of the universe except my body when it comes to sex. Really. So what should we do? 
given that God has so honored our bodies and has a plan for our bodies, what should we do? Well, we should honor God with your body. What does that look like? Well, we go back up the passage a little bit. Verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. The story of Joseph in Genesis 39 is just an, a brilliant illustration for us of what we should do. The Bible says he was tall, he was strong, he was good looking, serving in a position of trust in Potiphar's household. Day after day, Potiphar's wife kept coming in with the makeup on, trying to seduce him. And she would seek to invade his mind and emotions relentlessly. That's how strong temptation is, of course. And in some respects, that's what we are faced with day after day in our culture. Maybe even in your office. Maybe at school. Maybe with the content that is sent to you on your phone. Maybe the content that you scroll willingly, scroll through willingly on your laptop. We face a constant barrage of an invasion, if you like, of our mind and our emotions trying to entice us and seduce us. But what should we do? What should we do? Should we skirt around the edges? Should we just kind of see where the boundary lines are and see how close that we can, we can get without actually falling into sin? Well, no, that's crazy. The thing that Paul is addressing here that, they're, that they are doing wrong is that they are getting as close as they possibly can. They're becoming one flesh with those that they shouldn't. And Paul is saying, you need to do the very opposite. You need to flee sexual immorality. All of these enticements, all of these seductions, you need to turn and flee. Flee, get as far away from that thing as you can and recognize the, the connotations of the word flee. It, it, it denotes a an urgency. Run for your life. You know, I, I, have, I always, whenever I, I think of the word flee, I just think of, uh, of 9-11. I think of the towers falling. I think of those dust clouds and rubble rushing through the streets after people and, and just pe uh, person after person just fleeing, running for their lives. We have to sense the danger that is inherent in this in sexual immorality, and we are to turn and run as fast as we can, just as Joseph did. Flee. Don't reason with sexual sin. Just run. Don't dabble. Don't peruse. Don't experiment. Don't try to find yourself. Just run for your lives. So the question that we want to ask at the end is, is really in terms of application. Are you involved in any kind of sexual relationship or sexual activity that needs to stop? Are you getting too close? Are you abusing the Christian liberty that is given you in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? Are you too heavily influenced by our cultural views of sex and relationships? Whether you're a young person and your mates at school are boasting about the fact that they've had sex and you've not. You feel the pressure of that? You feel the enticements of, of someone who desires to have you? 
and you're tempted to give in. Maybe your, your, your mind fantasizes over the people that you meet, whether they're friends or strangers. And you find it difficult because all that you're doing when you meet a person is imagining the sexual possibilities with them. And maybe you're the kind of person who looks at sex in its various forms, whether with self or with someone else, and use it as a way of coping with stress or anxiety. Some people do that. God's word tells you to turn and flee from that and flee to Christ the one who forgives all of our sins. The one who rescues us. The one who helps us and provides a way up, a way for us to stand up under temptation. The one who himself was without sin. Whatever our temptation, we must take decisive action to resist it and run to Christ. Because Phil, at the start, is very, very wrong. His sexual immorality is not just the satisfying of an appetite. He cannot practice sexual acts on himself or anyone else for that matter and still maintain a Christian life and witness. He just can't. We owe it to one. Remember, this this text is within the context of judging in chapter 5 and into chapter 6 where we are to call one another to account, to rebuke one another in love. Thank you, stop. And we owe it to God to judge each other about sexual sin because God cares about what we do with our bodies. They are his. If you're here tonight and you are really struggling with this, my encouragement for you is to pray to God and confess your sins. His grace, his love is powerful. More powerful than any sexual desire that you may have. My encouragement for you is to treasure him above all. That Christ holds greater joy and greater satisfaction for you than any kind of sexual desire or any kind of sexual gratification. I would encourage you to do what the Apostle Paul encourages you to do in in Philippians chapter 4, where he says, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, lovely, admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Fix your attention on holy things. And please, please, if this is a particular struggle for you, even if it's just a mild struggle for you, please come and talk to us about it. Or at least talk to one of your friends and say, I would like some accountability in this regard. Would you help me? I know it's not right to look at this kind of stuff. I know it's not right to do this stuff with my girlfriend or my boyfriend, but I'm really struggling with this and I want you to help me. Maybe there's plenty of opportunities to download Covenant Eyes Bible account, uh, uh, 
internet accountability software. There are plenty of things that you can do, but please don't go away and struggle with this on your own. Please do speak to us. Uh, we've all struggled with temptations like these. And I would encourage you to let us help you. Because really the quality of your Christian life and witness is at stake. Glorify God with your body and let us do it together as a church. Let's pray together.